This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Stephanie K. Dunning, author of Black to Nature, Pastoral Return and African-American Culture, published this year by University Press of Mississippi. Dr. Dunning, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Um, well, um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm from the South. Uh, originally, I was born and raised uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. I did my undergraduate work at Spelman College. Um, I did my PhD at the University of California, Riverside. And then I moved to Ohio, where uh, I've been working at Miami University of Ohio since 2001. Um, you know, I, I, in terms of how I, I came to this project, I think that it was, you know, concerns with nature or love of nature or wanting to be in nature was always um, a part of my life, but I never really thought of it um, as, you know, just, it was so natural to me that it wasn't an object that I had inquired into really. Um, and then, you know, as I write about in the book, um, in 2011, I was, or 2012, some, somewhere between 2011 and 2012, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And, um, and so during that time, I really uh, found myself spending a lot more time in nature and being more aware of the ways in which um, I was kind of seeking out these natural places. Simultaneous to that, I started to sort of notice a lot of references to nature in um, the texts that I was most interested in as well. And so that is kind of how Black to Nature came into being. Okay, and can you tell us what some of these uh, these texts are that you're analyzing here? It's kind of a, an interesting variety of literature, film, music, um, sort of across the whole spectrum. Well, yeah, I mean, I, um, I talk about everything from um, Octavia Butler to Beyonce um, to um, Daughters of the Dust and Jasmine Ward. So, you know, I sort of just, you know, the other, the other thing about this project is that it's my second book. It's my post-tenure book. So, um, so I, so I had, I felt a lot more, uh, uh, liberated in terms of curating the set of texts that I wanted. And so I really 
wrote about the things that I only wanted to write about. Um, a lot of times when you've written a dissertation or when you're writing your first book, you one can feel that there's like a sort of a burden to, um, to cover the field in a certain kind of way. And I felt less pressure uh, to do that and more pressure to sort of just write about the text that I was, you know, drawn to um, in, in, in unique ways. And so, so there is a lot of sort of popular culture analysis in the book, and there's also literary analysis in the book. Um, most of the texts are by Black women. In fact, all of them are really, except for Beasts of the Southern Wild, which, you know, is in the book more as a kind of, um, as a site of sort of um, where some of the issues around race and nature come together in, in ways that don't seem as generative to my reading um, as some other work does. So, you know, so also I think it's a very Black feminist project in the sense that um, I was drawn to uh, Black women's texts and Black women's articulations about nature. And so, you know, those are the things that kind of uh, shape the project. And, you know, I would say that this book is really a labor of love for me and um, was something that I really enjoyed uh, putting together. Yeah, so then the, the larger context uh, in which you're writing and in which all of these different texts were, were created is that Black Americans have this kind of conflicted relationship with nature and the land. So could you give us a little bit of the history behind that, that conflicted relationship? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think that it's less, you know, I, I would sort of phrase it in a, in a, in a slightly in a slightly different way, not completely different, but just a slightly different way to say that racism puts black people into a conflicted relationship to nature. And so, you know, I think that, um, I mean, not everyone loves nature, <laughs> regardless of race. Some people are just not uh, into uh, being outside. Uh, but I think relative to, I mean, there's a way in which our, in, in our, in our popular culture and in our sort of media coverage about national parks, hiking and things of that sort, Black people get constructed as not being interested in nature. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to see now that I think there's a lot of emphasis uh, from a lot of different organizations um, that are about that are precisely about black people engaging with nature. So I would just say that there's a way in which racism has operated, you know, geographically relative to what we think of as natural space in a way that has made those spaces historically and presently dangerous um, for black people. So that like the history of lynching, for example, um, has often very much been coded through nature, you know, when, when people are contemplating uh, lynching in their work. And I, I talk about these in the introduction, like Richard Wright's poem, Between the World and Me, is about him walking in the woods and coming upon the, you know, the scene of, of, of a lynching after the fact, a charred body. Um, Billie Holiday's song, Strange Fruit, is, you know, talks about 
southern trees, you know, bearing a strange fruit so that trees um, kind of get associated with this, this horrific racial violence. Um, I also talk about how uh, discourses of primitivism uh, in, in Western culture um, sort of makes, you know, has historically made people feel that if you align yourself with nature, then you're playing into stereotypes um, and also slavery, right? Forced agrarian labor has the effect of uh, radically changing one's relationship to outdoor uh, spaces. So I think that the wedge here is really racism. <laughs> racism is really the thing that, that structures, uh, you know, what is perceived as Black aversion to natural space. And then that sort of leads us into the, you know, one of the phrases that's in your subtitle there, pastoral return, which seems to be describing both something that's happening in, you know, these texts where nature is, is taking this more prominent role, but then also kind of a, a physical pastoral return. And you talk about uh, a sort of reversal of the, the so-called great migration, right? Where early 20th century, a lot of black people moved into urban areas, but now you're seeing people kind of returning to rural spaces, like physically moving back. Can you talk about kind of the connections between those two elements? Yeah, I mean, I think the pastoral return bit is, um, it's, it's both literal and metaphorical in, in some ways. Metaphorical, like, you know, I think in Beyonce's album Lemonade, which I talk about in the first chapter, um, and there's a lot of things in Lemonade that I, that I, you know, didn't even really have time to cover, but like, you know, if you watch that out, if you, it's a visual album, there's kind of a, a movie that goes along with the actual album. Then what you see is that in that piece, Beyonce really highlights aspects of um, Black life, Black rural life or pastoral life that the mainstream pays little attention to. Um, like, you know, the, the tradition of, um, black horse riders we don't we don't there's a there's a long rich tradition of black horse riding but we don't hear about that we don't really get that um very much um even she even goes so far as to sort of record a country song and she 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 performed that song at the country music awards to much um you know controversy among country music people so um so i so so there's a way in which the return is kind of happening metaphorically and artistically in the work, but it, it also tracks to a trend, which I, which I discuss briefly in, in the book of many people who are returning uh, to the South um, in a kind of, you know, reverse quote unquote reverse migration. And I think this is because the, the perception of geographical safety um, has been undermined, um, or I should say has been exposed as kind of a wish more than a reality by the, the prevalence of racial violence against Black people regardless of location. So the old kind of the, the sort of historical notion that 
one could go to the North and escape racial violence, that mythology doesn't exist anymore because you know we, we have seen the footage, we have the names, we have the statistics of all of the Black people uh, killed by extrajudicial vigilantes and police. Um, so there isn't really like, you can't say this is the state, this is, you know, above this marker in the United States is where Black people rarely experience um, racial violence. You can't say that. So because it, it's universal, it happens everywhere um, in, in this country. So so what I are what I'm talking about and what you know many of the pieces that I cite that talk about this are saying is well, you know, people are saying, well, if you're gonna if if every, if nowhere is safe, then you might as well live where you want. And some people want to live in the South. Um, some people want to live in in rural pastoral settings. And so the the perception or the notion that that is riskier than living, you know, up north or maybe out west, that that perception doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. So in your analysis, you talk a lot about the idea of abolition. So, you know, what is it that, that you want to abolish and, and why? Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> um, so abolition is a uh, is a is a is a term from Afro pessimism, um, which refers to the fact that I mean you know one of the primary claims of of Afro pessimism is that you know though um, slavery as we knew it no longer exists, uh, black people still are experiencing uh, you know social death and still are experiencing um, many of the same phenomenological conditions of slavery. So, um, so abolition refers to, you know, essentially, you know, the, the end of all of the systems, the interlocking systems, which continue to uh, create a world that really requires Black subjugation in order to exist. So, in like, for example, in, in, in Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, which is a reference to Richard Wright's poem that I talked about a second ago, um, you know, he says that when the police kill someone, this isn't really an aberration. This is kind of the function of the police. And so like when people talk about defunding and abolishing the police, I mean, these are some of the ways in which the discourse of abolition um, you know, has, has entered the conversation. These are the kinds of abolitionist impulses that I'm talking about uh, in, the, in the book. You know, our society requires uh, the subjugation of Black people to function and exist as it currently does. And so we can't, you know, we won't see the end of um, racial violence and Black suffering without abolition. So this is, this is the reason for abolition. Um, for example, Calvin Warren's ontological terror, you know, he opens by talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and about the ways in which a humanist discourse of liberation um, will never succeed in liberating 
black people because humanism is 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 sort of historically and ideologically at odds with black liberation. So this is this is what abolition is about. Um, and this is uh, and this is this is kind of the ways the way that nature that I'm arguing that nature intersects with these discourses of abolition is that I'm saying that when we see nature show up in a text and specifically when we see nature show up in a black text, it's always a kind of mnemonic for abolition because it is because we understand nature to be and I and I I, I want to be clear that of course I'm talking about you know nature is a is a construct. Um, I'm not actually talking about a real thing necessarily because we we construct nature in certain kinds of ways, but in black constructions of nature or the black constructions of nature that I'm talking about in the book, all of these point towards a, a discourse of abolition. That that is that is part of of what I'm arguing in the book. All right. So you've talk there you know, a lot about how you draw on uh, these ideas of Afro-pessimism. You mentioned black feminism uh, earlier, but then another source that you draw on, on your analysis that was, I guess, a little surprising to me uh, was Buddhism. Uh, so can you talk about the, the role that some Buddhist ideas play in your book? Well, I've been saying for many, many years uh, when I teach uh, theory classes, I teach literary theory that the next step after post-structuralism is Zen. Um, and you know, you could there there are there are like glimmers of this in in the in the work, you know, I mean, in Eve Sedgwick's Touching Feeling, for example, um, she has a whole chapter on on Buddhism. Um, and so I I do think that there are these traces within um, academia even, and, and this, this is, this is quite, you know, I think this will be like the next sort of wave of, of, um, theorization that happens. So, you know, I'm a long time meditator. And in fact, um, you know, the way I found out I had a brain tumor was that I was, I was participating in a, in a study at Yale, uh, for advanced meditators to go into an MRI machine so that they could see what happens to the brain when people meditate. And that's how I found out I had a brain tumor. So I've been a, a meditator for a very long time. And um, the way that Zen discourses and, and particularly the notion of interbeing as first articulated by uh, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, um, the way that it, it works with the analysis that I'm doing is that Zen, um, that concept of interbeing, I felt captured uh, in a good way what I saw as the ways in which these Black texts engage with nature that is distinct from what we might see in like, you know, the work of John Muir, for example. Um, it was a way for me to kind of articulate what it would mean to in, engage nature with reverence, but not with objectification, not as an other. And Zen discourses specifically like the notion of homelessness. And when I say homelessness, I'm, I'm using the Zen version of that term. I'm not talking about people who are 
um, forcefully unhoused, but like um, the, the, you know, the life of homelessness is a common uh, turn of phrase in Zen discourses to describe the monk's life. Um, it's in the Pali canon, when someone decides to become a monk or a nun, it is often said, you know, such and so chose the life of homelessness um, because it's like the end of ownership. So, so one of the ways in which uh, I'm using Zen in the book is to sort of think about how these ways of approaching and the, the sort of the Zen standard of life is very much abolitionist because it's the end of striving, it's the end of competition, it's the end of ownership. Um, and it's a, it's a gateway and a methodology for um, transformation of, um, you know, many of the problematic things that we find in society or that we find in ourselves. Zen is a vehicle by which we can sort of uh, transmute and transform these things into something that would be more generative and uh, communal and life-giving. So this is th these are the ways in which um, in which I'm I'm sort of evoking Zen because I think the monk's life is is basically it's a it's it's a it's a personal abolition. It's abolition on a personal level. Um, and so it, it's a kind of model for how we might think about abolition in a broader sense as well. Okay. And now I want to circle back around to something that you had mentioned earlier, uh, and kind of probe into it a little more deeply, which is that, uh, all of the works that you analyze, except for one were created by black women and they all have black women or girls as their like protagonists. So can you talk a little bit more about, you know, why you, you chose to use uh, all of these works that are centered on, on women or girls and, uh, you know, kind of what that adds to your, your analysis to, to have this gender component to it? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that I didn't, um, I didn't start out by saying like, oh, I'm only going to talk about texts by black women. It just so happened that the most sort of remarkable text to me um, that highlighted uh, the issues that I was thinking about were by black women. So I think that, um, that there is a way in which, um, you know, but it was, but as I was sort of uh, writing the book and working on it, and when I went to write the introduction, I had to acknowledge and sort of think about the sort of um, underlying Black feminist ethos that I was bringing to the project, even though I hadn't originally, I, I didn't set out with the intent to say, oh, I'm, I'm going to exclude Black um, men's work from this. It was really more like these are the texts that I was interested in and they all happen to be by Black women or in the case of Beasts of the Southern Wild to focus on Black women. Um, although um, The Girl with All the, the Gifts is, is um, originally um, it, the, the novel is written by a white man. Um, so um, so it was it was more like the the collection of these texts 
um, ended up, you know, reflecting, I think, my own deepest Black feminist sensibilities, um, which to me, you know, again, is not an objectified position. It's, it's, it's like, it's where I live, basically. So this comes out in the work. But when I moved to this place of, of, of moving towards publication, I had to sort of find a way to articulate the fact that this Black feminist framework, which for me is, is my foundational um, existential framework, really, um, Black feminist theorization has a capaciousness to it that allowed for the articulation of this really complex um, constellation of issues that I was looking at. So this intersection of nature, naturalness, uh, blackness, um, spirituality, abolition, all of those things came together in these texts. And I think it's a, it's a sort of testament to how powerful the theorizations of black feminism are because this is the work that comes out of it. This is the artistic work that comes out of that black feminist framework. And so, um, so while it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't um, a choice, like a, a, a conscious choice anyway, wasn't a, a set of texts that I chose to exclude certain things. Cause certainly, you know, there are other things that could have been included that I didn't include. Um, but it was more about the, the unique way that these, you know, texts by Black women or about Black women um, embodied the, the kind of like um, experimental, capacious, like groundbreaking notions about uh, Black ontology in the world that, that, I, was, that I was looking to, um, to highlight. Okay, so I think that's a, a good segue to ask you to do kind of a, a deep dive into one of the, the texts that you analyze, give us sort of a, a taste of, you know, how you approach, uh, how you approach reading uh, one of these, these works. Uh, and I'd like you to, if you could uh, talk about my favorite of the works that you analyzed, which is uh, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. So can you give us kind of a, a overview of uh, what that novel uh, you know, means and how it relates to the themes that you've been talking about here? Um, you know, Butler uh, was, she was a writer, but she was also a prophet. And I think that um, Parable of the Sower is such a powerful text for anyone who encounters it. I've taught it many, many times and there's a lot of, of, of work around Butler now. Um, there's, a, there's operas, there's a film being made, there was a graphic novel made of Parable of the Sower. Um, and, um, and all of that work is so wonderful and, and, and embodied of uh, Black women's experience. And I think that for me, um, Parable of the Sower is such an important book because it, it, the, through the character of Lauren Olamina, um, who is, you know, it's like, here she is, this, this young Black protagonist 
who's warning the other people uh, who can see the writing on the wall. You know, she's warning the other people that something is going to have to happen. Uh, like, and, and it's not a matter of, of choice. Like the society, the, the, the sort of tenuous society that they're living in, in the, in the novel um, is going to, it's going to break and that, and that people sort of need to be prepared for it. What I, what I love about Parable of the Sower and the, and the Parable series and really all of Butler's work is that um, Butler shows us a problem, but she also suggests a solution. And the solution, of course, is completely abolitionist. Lauren Olamina starts over. She starts a new community. She starts a new faith-based system, if you want to call it faith. Uh, you know, faith in change, which which is you know a fact of life, um, a very Zen sort of fact of life, and you know, so this um, this novel, I approach the novel very much as a way of talking about apocalypse, um, because one of the ways in which society doesn't change is through a concerted and ongoing um, effort to stigmatize and pathologize um, societal collapse. So um, I talk about, uh, um, oh gosh, I'm not gonna remember his life. I talk about a book called Against the Grain in which um, I think the author's name is, is James C. Scott. Um, yeah. in which he talks about how, you know, civilizations fall. Um, it's just, it's sort of a fact of civilization. That's, that's what, that's what history says. And, and, and he, he says, you know, the, for only for state elites is the collapse of civilization a problem. And so, you know, when we think about abolition or we think about apocalypse, you know, everyone gets afraid because we've all seen the purge and we've all seen, you know, uh, World War Z and all these films that suggest that without the police, without government, without the, the sort of behemoth of, of state control that we currently live under, you know, it's just going to be hell. It's going to be horrible. Everyone's going to be dying in the street and, and that kind of thing. And I think what Parable of the Sower shows is like, yes, there could be violence, um, although, you know, as I point out in my book, that assumes that we aren't living with violence now, <laughs> so, which is not the case. We are living in, in, in America, especially, we are living in an incredibly violent society where you can really be killed at any time. Um, so I think one of the things that's so compelling about Parable of the Sower is that you know, it says, yeah, things are, are collapsing. Like things are not good. Yes. There's violence. There's people burning in the streets, but there is a way that we might be able to reimagine how to be in community. And there's a way in which we might articulate who we are differently than we have before. And, um, and that is kind of, the role that Lauren Olamina uh, plays in 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 that novel, and so um, and you know the fact that uh, Butler 
um, illuminates the way out through uh, a black, a young black uh, woman protagonist um, also says something about, you know, the dynamics, the structural dynamics of what a post-abolition world would look like and the sorts of notions about who gets to lead, who has the good ideas, all of those things are, are sort of uh, turned on their head by Parable of the Sower as this, you know, uh, I don't know, she's like maybe 17 or 18 at the beginning of the novel as this, you know, 18 year old girl leads a group of people sort of into the wilderness and, and together they figure out a completely different way to live. So I think this is, this is, this is, you know, what makes the novel so compelling and it's, and my interest in it is, is very much about, um, is very much about showing that this perception we have that on the other side of abolition is nothing but death and chaos is, is not the case. I think the parable of the sower very effectively shows the possibility of small communities and new ways of thinking and being. Okay. So then the next thing I wanted to ask about is actually the cover image of the book. Uh, so, uh, Listeners to the podcast might want to just Google it uh, since I can't really do it justice trying to describe it in, in an audio medium, but it's kind of a, a collage style piece showing a woman reaching for a fruit on a tree and then you've got a couple of snakes peeking into the frame. So can you tell us about this image uh, and why you chose it for the cover of the book? Well, the, the image is by an artist um, called... Wangechi Mutu, um, whose work I absolutely love. Um, and I, I, the reason I chose the image um, is because I, well, first of all, I thought it was beautiful. And second of all, I thought that it spoke to um, the themes of the text very well because um, in the introduction, I talk a lot about the imagery from the Garden of Eden. And, um, and so the image kind of evokes the Garden of Eden. We have a woman, there's a snake, there's sort of a fruit hanging from a tree. And, um, but yet there are these um, sort of metal, it looks like sort of metal parts that make up the, the body of this woman. And so um, to me, the image uh, speaks to all of these, um, like it sort of references a kind of history that I unpack around the ways in which Western society um, constructed nature as an other and the role that the, um, that the story of, about the Garden of Eden plays in that. And this image is a kind of embrace of um, that story as opposed to, a, a, or a, a sort of embrace of the natural scenario of the Garden of Eden. You know, the instead of recoiling from the serpent, um, the, the woman is reaching out. Both she and the serpent are reaching for the fruit and she seems unafraid and, um, and so it isn't, it isn't the kind of menacing idea about nature that 
we have inherited from this 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 story this story of the fall from grace um and so you know for me the image really speaks to you know in a really beautiful and complex way um all of what i'm trying to get at about uh, black engagement with nature as a kind of way to think about uh how we could get ourselves out of the 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 literal and figurative tangles we have we have made of of our of our place in the natural world and the ways in which that the inheritance of that tangle is anti-blackness all right so we're getting towards the end of our time here so uh before we closed i wanted to first give you an opportunity to give a, a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book oh that's i didn't expect that that's that's super that's super nice well you know there are so many um people whose work um i absolutely adore and and who you know whose own theorizations um, allowed me to 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 trace this trajectory, and I, I list a lot of them in my um, acknowledgments. But in terms of like, um, you know, sort of being someone I could constantly talk through ideas with and bounce things off of, you know, uh, Candace Jenkins. She's a professor at um, the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and um, and has been a, a wonderful colleague and friend in terms of, um, you know, just being there to listen to my flights of fancy, not all of which um, made it into the book, but um, that, that process of sort of having that back and forth with an incredibly brilliant person is always, you know, just super helpful. So I'm, I'm deeply and forever indebted um, to our conversations. So thank you, Candace. All right. So then to finish with our traditional final question, uh, what are you working on next? Well, <laughs> so um, I'm working on a book that is about, um, that, that sort of does a kind of um, similar methodology to uh, what I did in Black to Nature, which is about thinking about blackness, interstellar space and ecology together. So, um, so that's, that's, that's what I'm working on right now. Um, and um, I'm still, you know, I'm still at the beginning stages of that, of that project, but um, it's, I'm super excited about it. And, you know, I'm teaching in London this summer, I'm teaching a class on it and I've given a, a couple of talks from, you know, that, that, draw from this from this work and so it's just been really uh fun for me to sort of think about um the relationship of you know and again I'm I'm you know I'm using a kind of afro-pessimist framework to sort of think about how discourses of space black discourses of space in in literature and popular culture um evoke all these ideas and sort of expand uh, the territory of, um, of, of like alternate space where abolition and liberation might be possible. All right. Well, that sounds really fascinating. I'll definitely keep an eye out for that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. 
So Dr. Dunning, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You just heard a conversation with Stephanie K. Dunning, author of Black to Nature, Pastoral Return and African-American Culture, published this year by University Press of Mississippi.